And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on April 16th, 2021. Alex Smith is the owner of Division Street Landscaping. The company is entirely staffed by ex-offenders. Alex started his journey while he was incarcerated, serving a 30-year prison sentence for carjacking, assault, and handgun violations. While in prison, he was part of a group of inmates who petitioned the warden for permission to start a horticulture program. He became a master gardener behind bars, and the master program continues to spread to other facilities in the state. Alex is now out after serving 15 years of his 30-year sentence. Since his release, he has created the Urban Roots Apprenticeship Training Program at the Baltimore Tree Trust, where he has served as the Director of Operations for five years. He also created Division Street Academy under his own company with the goal of training former inmates in landscaping and entrepreneurship for the landscaping industry. Alex consults workforce development programs across the country that cater to the green job industry. He believes that there is a special kind of healing that takes place when the citizens of a community that once destroyed it play a part in beautifying and maintaining it. Welcome to the Plant a Trillion Trees podcast, Alex. We're delighted to have you with us today. We've been looking forward to this. We really have. And after reading your uh, background and your amazing community efforts within uh, Baltimore, we feel really blessed that you could be on our show. One of the things that we want to find out from you is how did the actual program start within the context of the prison? And how did that grow out and into what you have today? Because there might be other people who are in your same situation that would like to do something similar. This prison was relatively new. It didn't have a lot of programs there. You know, they had a school, which I believe is mandatory. But if you are a certain age and you've already accomplished that part, it's really nothing for you to do especially if you, you know, at the beginning of your sentence. So, you know, it was a couple of guys like that. And um, one guy in particular, a guy named Jimmy Carter, he actually was a professional landscaper on the outside. So he knew about all this stuff. And we were just sitting around talking about it. And then he said, hey, that's, you know, how about this? Let's give it a shot. And so he wrote a letter. You know, we all looked at the letter. We all chimed in. We signed, you know, signed a petition and sent it to the warden you know, um, saying that we would like to start a horticulture program. Didn't know what would come of it, and he was down. Wow. The warden said that it, that sounded like a great idea. You know, um, the only thing he did say was that he wanted us to take the lead on it. 
So we would have to write for the grants. We would have to write anything that had to do with it. He would, you know, of course, approve all that stuff, but we would have to do the, um, you know, all the work. So, you know, I was, you know, one of the guys sitting at the table because I didn't know anything about landscape. I just had a love for nature. And I was in prison with a lot of time ahead of me. And I said, this sounds interesting. This is something I want to do. They, you know, that's how it got started. So we wrote, once the warden gave approval, you know, we discussed things with Nature Secret, which is the TKF Foundation now. No, it was the TKF Foundation then. It's Nature, Nature Secret now. And they agreed to, uh, to fund the project. We just had to do a meditation garden. You know, they got connected and we started actually building the benches that they use in their garden spaces. So that was, that was a connection. And then all these plans. So we built a greenhouse and we started studying. Um, we wrote a guy by the name of Dr. Yoda, who was at um, University of Frostburg University. But he was part of the University of Maryland Cooperative Extension Program, which is how we got our master gardeners. He actually proctored the um, exam for us. That's how all that got started. It was just some guys that wanted to do something. And it happened that one of us had been into landscaping on the outside. Would you say your first garden uh, as you were getting into the landscaping was the meditation garden? Was that one of the first projects? Absolutely. Can you talk a little bit more about that in terms of even the design and, and the plant material and... Um, was there a point when you were involved with putting it together where you kind of had the light bulb go on and had any kind of experience where, was, where you started thinking, wow, I really love this? Yeah, well, well Jimmy took the lead because he had the knowledge and experience. You know, so he, he really took the lead, but, you know, I just started digging into it. You know, I would get books from him, get books from the library, and I started studying because it, it started getting interesting to me, you know. Um, and the other part about it is that, you know, another guy who had a landscaping company, you know, he came in the prison and he talked about the financial side of it. Jimmy never really spoke about that. Mm. Jimmy just talked about the, the horticultural side of it. But there was another guy who spoke about, you know, how much money he earned and all this kind of stuff. So I said, you know, I'm definitely going to need a career once I get out of here. I had never considered landscaping or anything in that field. But once he started telling us about, you know, um, how much he made, how much his crew made, it started to make sense. Alex, did you, when, when the warden had given you the opportunity to write the grants, did you feel that he was empowering you as as inmates in a, in a way that you might not have otherwise been empowered? Well, I was just surprised that he that it wasn't just ignored or the idea just wasn't shot down. Because so many times you might write, you write to volunteer, was a guy there um, by the name of Bill Joel. He was a volunteer activity coordinator. He had a lot to do with it. So it was a lot of people that supported what we wrote, but... I'll tell you, it, it, they probably, you know, that that's probably like one of the letters that actually made it past the, um, you know, the old circular file. <laughs> so it was, it was that part of it that was so surprising to you. Yeah, like the fact that it even got some traction. But it, you know, whenever you sit down and do something, and then the next thing you know that people buy into it, it it's cool. 
And then once it starts to come to fruition, once they say, hey, come to this meeting, and what kind of tools do you think you're going to need? What's this going to happen? You know, all that stuff started happening. And I'm like, oh, this is real. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, we were going, we were going to classes on Wednesday nights and, you know, being taught out of a book and, you know, a lot of things that we couldn't, like that would be considered contraband normally, you know, we had to get approval so that we can actually touch some of the things. And then sometimes we were creative, like for instance, you know, like the llama beans that you would get for lunch. That's how you could see how a seed, you know, turns into a plant, you know, turns into a flower and a sprout and all that. Like we just did stuff like that. Looked at peanuts that people would just would have for snacks and say, Oh, this can be a, this can be a lesson. You know, so it was it was just being creative and having people support you. Cause I think that's how it is now out here doing this stuff, when you don't have all the resources in the world, you don't know, you gotta, you gotta be resourceful. You know, you gotta start to use your brain a little bit and start to say, how can we do this? How can we not necessarily circumvent things, but you gotta be creative to make it happen. One of the things that I really admire about you is the fact that you are changing your community in a way that it had has not been changed before. And you're getting people involved that may have felt like they have no options. And to empower p- other people is is a, is a very, very spiritual thing. And I think that that's a really important calling for a person to be able to, to do that and to make those connections. And not only in in your bio, the idea of the people who destroy a community rebuild it through what they've learned and are creating a new and beautiful community. And I think that that's really an amazing act. It's an unselfish act. I appreciate that. It's really an unselfish. I used to work with uh, children in high school that were put in that high school because either that they'd be in jail, but they were too young to be put into prison as adults. And I will honestly tell you that when I would take them outside and work, we would be pruning shrubs and talking about, you know, different tools and what to use and how to uh, make something look better. It was like every cloud in their life disappeared. Yeah. It's, it's funny that you would mention that. I got a call from a mentor of mine the other day and asked me, could I, bring on a, a kid that um, hangs out with his sons. And he noticed that, you know, the kid didn't have the same kind of support that his sons did. So he's kind of like, you know, adopted the kid. But he said, hey, he, he's a good kid. He needs to work. He needs to start, you know, figuring some of this stuff out. He's about to graduate from high school. You got something for him. I brought him out. And I'm telling you, he got a tree named after him. Oh, that's wonderful. Nice. And, he was so pumped up and I, and I actually posted it on my Facebook page, but it was, but it was cool to see, like he texted me like nine o'clock at night, like, and I got a tree named after me, the biggest tree in the park. And I was like, that's cool. Because you, you never know. Some, some people look at opportunities and don't really see what's being done for them. You know, we gave him a shot, but not only did I give him a shot, but he, he had somebody that was there for him to think about him and say, hey, he needs a shot. Because otherwise, you know, 
some people don't see the path that they're going down. Us adults, we kind of see it because we've been there, done that. And for, you know, my friend to recognize that in, in this kid, say, oh, no, we need to put our arms around him now. It was cool. How old is the young man, Alex? 18. Yeah. And he's a smart kid. He, he told me he's, in, he's still in school. I thought he had graduated. He said, no, I got, but I already have enough credits, so I don't really have to show up. Oh. <laughs> well, I, I have to tell you, you came highly recommended to us by Patrick Wilton, one of my former students who works for an uh, a landscape architecture firm down in Baltimore. Um, that is uh, Copeland something in Mock, right? I can't remember the phone yeah, name yeah. either, but so, yes. And, and he contacted me and said, you have to, you have to interview Alex Smith. He is an amazing guy. And one of the things that I find to be extremely important on our podcast is to show examples of what's working and how wonderful people are out there that are changing the lives of others and changing the, the actual natural environment because of what you're doing whether it's planting trees, putting in landscapes, putting in patios, whatever it is that your company is doing, you're changing the face of a community and changing lives. That's critical. I appreciate that. Yeah, I appreciate that. And then the, the funny thing is, on that project, I actually ran into one of Patrick's coworkers. And I, and I just sent him a message to tell him I said hello. But I had, I had never met this guy. Yeah, cool. he had also heard you on a, a, a radio show or podcast, and yeah. he sent that along to me, so I listened to it, and I said, yeah, we, we want to have this gentleman on our show, so we're really glad that you're on the show. So tell us a little bit now about the planting and what the actual field work that you're doing to change lives, but change the visual within Baltimore, because I hear that it's pretty astounding. <laughs> so, so right right now, um, I'm all over the place. I have off, offered my services or accepted offers to come help other folks all over the city. And some people say that's like a conflict of interest if you work with this organization and you work with another organization. You know, I don't feel that way. As far as I'm concerned, my conflict would be if I couldn't achieve my goal. And my goal is, you know, to marry... Baltimore City's need for the green spaces to be taken care of, green spaces to be created, more trees to be planted and, and the canopy to be taken care of with the citizens' need to, to go to work. And in my mind, that's a match made in heaven. Everywhere I go, I see weeds, I see unkempt um, gardens and vacant lots. And it's an eyesore to some, but I see opportunity. So I'm, I'm working with a bunch of people from Park Heights Renaissance. You know, I'm the program manager for uh, their Clean and Green program. I'm helping Waterfront Partnership develop a curriculum for their Clean and Green program and their uh, workforce development program. And I'm helping a couple other individual community development corporations and um, neighborhood associations with their green efforts. And, you know, it's cool to, to hire the big guys and have them come and do all the work if all you're thinking about is the beautification part of it. But if you're thinking about the big picture, and the big picture is there are people in these neighborhoods where these vacant lots are that need work. 
So what sense does it make to call people from outside the community to do this work when you can train people to do this kind of work? And not only that, they can maintain it. You know, I, I, I had a conversation with someone the other day where they were saying, you know, the small guys cost too much. You know, and I said to them, I don't agree with that. You know, we really can't beat the big guys. Like, for instance, like a corner store can't beat Walmart. So sometimes our prices may be a little larger because we can't, we don't have the access to greenhouses and mulch and material when you buy at such a large volume as the big guys. But I think what we can offer in exchange for that is more value. And I, and I challenged these people. I said, show me one project in Baltimore City where you've paid six figures or more to one of these big companies, and it still looks good six months or a year later. That's exactly right. Well, it's, mm. about, it's about supporting local. It's about yeah. supporting the, the smaller businesses so that they have the potential to survive yeah. and to thrive with hiring local people. And, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a small business person. I, I know what it's like, and I really support small business. I think it's really critical for the survival of a, of a, a downtown community. Absolutely. Whether it's, in, whether it's in Baltimore, whether it's in a suburb. Absolutely. And I, I just, I haven't had one person answer that question yet because I, I don't think it exists. Mm-hmm. So with the uh, geography, is Baltimore like a row house, row house neighborhoods like Philadelphia, and then you had the occasional demolition on one corner or the other, and that's where the vacant lot? Yeah, a lot of that. And there's a whole, sometimes, uh, you know, uh, Baltimore has almost, I don't want to say, uh, it's been like this mass exodus. Like, we've lost a lot of population. So you have blocks of empty houses. And sometimes uh, those whole blocks are raised. And then um, it's just left there. They take in, they, you know, put the tops, you know, the geotextile fabric down, topsoil, and, you know, they just seed and straw. Real simple stuff. That just turns into three-foot-high weeds. Oh, and a dumping zone, too, for that matter. Uh, I, I, and Baltimore is a beautiful city. I've been there many, many, many times. And... The housing is beautiful in the old sections, just just beautiful if people have the vision to want to to fix up and to add to the community. It's really a lovely a lovely uh, city. Yeah, I mean, I've been to a few cities. I just went to Chicago, and I'll tell you this: I was shocked how beautiful Chicago was. But I I still love my city. You know, when I came home, I was I was glad to be home. Well. I'm actually a Chicagoan, Alex, and even though I love this, the city and I've been in Philly for 40 years, one thing Chicago does in kind of a sinister way yeah. is you were probably up near the lake, near the north side, but man, you get into the south side. I grew up in a neighborhood called South Shore, and it is bad. It's like Baltimore. Oh, I went to the south side. I, um. I watched this guy on YouTube. He does a lot of skits where it's like a moral at the end of the skit. And so he often uses local businesses in his skits and, and gives them promotion. Like if he does something in a restaurant or, you know, some other establishment or a barbershop. Yeah. Uh, I just Googled those places and I, and I went there, you know. There you go. So I, was, I was in the South Side, and it, but I, I still, you know, the, you know, the, the, the plant person, the green person in me, 
was just in love with Lakeshore Drive. Yeah. And how clean it was. Yeah, no, it's... But here's right. the thing, you know, we're talking about disparity within the different communities. We we have it here in Philadelphia, you have it in Baltimore, that the, under, the underprivileged to get, get underserved. And it, it is so wrong because it's that green, it's that beauty that actually inspires people to do things differently and to encourage people to even feel better about themselves, even if they don't have. And I think that that's one of the things that, that really needs to be expressed in every major city where there's a disparity in not only housing, but how green things are. And we know now that, you know, the wealthiest communities are the greenest communities. Absolutely. And that's and then, a sad thing. It's, it's definitely sad. And it's, and it's a double-edged sword. Like, I, I want to help people. But, but I think, especially today, helping people, you have to have some uncomfortable conversations. Mm-hmm. And some of those conversations people don't want to have. You know, and so I, I was having a conversation with a councilman yesterday, and I was telling him that like our neighborhoods are like a girlfriend, right? You meet her, you fall in love with her, and then after a while, you don't take care of her no more. You don't take out dinner, you don't buy roses, all the things you used to do, you know, uh, together. You don't do anymore, and then you wonder when she, why she left you, and then you get mad. That's a really good analogy. That's an excellent analogy. Yeah. You, you get the <laughs> mad when the next guy comes along and scoop her up. And that's what happens. That's what's happening in our community. We're not taking care of them. We're not treating them right. We're not giving them flowers. <laughs> you know, and then it comes people from Philly, New Jersey, D.C. They come in hand scooping up this stuff. Scooping up the property as investments. Yeah. 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 And, and, and so... And, and and people in Baltimore are sitting back and getting mad and they screaming justification, but is it is it justification or did you give it to them? That's a really that's a perspective that I've never heard, and I think that that's very very astute on your part. I I've, I think it's a really <laughs> wonderful way yeah. to put it. Well, it's it's not an easy thing to say because you know because people look at me. I'm a black guy. They like oh you're not supposed to you know like they I'm not going with that narrative. I say that we give we gave away our neighborhood. And then, you know, when you talk about, you know, what happened, white flight and all that kind of stuff, like the worst thing that ever happened in black neighborhoods is that the black people left too. If you went to the doctor, it was the doctor three blocks away and he lived on the block, you know, or upstairs from his own, you know, from his, uh, from his office. You know, the guy with the candy store lived up the block or upstairs from his office, you know, from his store. But after desegregation, it's like, oh no, we we leaving, and we and they ran for the hills, and so it's no it's no wonder why our neighborhoods look like that because there's a void of good people, and even it still happens to this day, when you have children that excel in school, and they go off to college, they don't come back. Yeah, you, you know, know it, it, that's interesting. I I was involved with a garden down in Philadelphia, North Philly, and it was a really not a pleasant neighborhood, and but I I would drive through it all the time to get to where I had to go. And one of my former students decided he wanted to build a garden and work with the people in the community. He lived in, actually was renting a home in the community. Mm -hmm. He was a white gentleman from New York. And he got, got together a group of people and they started this garden. And when they start to put the board of directors together and they started 
getting grants, winning grants for their farm. They had this board meeting and the gentleman sitting next to me, he said, you know, um, I'm an ex, I'm an ex drug dealer mm -hmm. and I'm here because I'm an entrepreneur. Uh, drug dealers are very good entrepreneurs. And, and he said, if we would have had vegetables or another vehicle of selling something, we wouldn't have sold drugs, but there wasn't anything else for us to sell. And that was the vehicle that we used to make our money. Yeah. And, and I thought to myself, wow, that's really telling for a community. And he was really supportive of the farm. He said, this is the, this is the best thing that could have ever happened to the community by having this farm here. Well, you, you know, what's crazy that a lot of things that you, you know, questions that you're asking and a lot of things that you're talking about, I've been having these same conversations here in, in, in the city. And so we're in two different places, but yet the same conversations are going on because there are people out here and the story is held up by some of the news stations that believe that people risk their life, limb, and liberty for Jordans. You know, they think that People out here are selling drugs because they don't want to do better, that they just insist on breaking the law, you know, and destroying their family and other people's family. When they never really consider that everybody in this world wants to be something. And but if you haven't been exposed to certain things, right? So if you if you live in a city and the people who have the nicest cars and the nicest clothes are the dope boys and you see them and you emulate them that's no different than if you live in the suburbs and you know you live around folks that go to private school and you know they have nice houses take nice vacations it's no different those kids grow up to do the same thing because it's the example that's been set in front of them exactly right. and so when you have that voice and so when you have that voyage we're talking about it's like and even when the working class, because that, that's the thing. Like, you got working class people, it's hard to, to beat the narrative of the dope boy when the dope boy lifestyle looks so much more fun than the people who go to get up and go to work every day. And, you know, it's sad to really bring it down to that, but we're talking about impressionable children. Yeah. We're not talking about adults that can reason and, and you know, and say, oh, yeah, it's nothing wrong with being you know, uh, a bus driver. There's nothing wrong with working at the stadium, you know? We, we talking about kids who, some of their parents go to work every day, but it's not reflected in their lifestyle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's a lot to ponder. Yeah, and, it is. And that everyone in this country should should think about these things. And I, it, the sad part is that so many people are so far removed from it that they don't even want to know about it. They just want to live their lives and forget about everything else. Yeah. And you can't do that because if you're living in a society that is free and democratic and we should also be caring about our neighbors, yeah. whether the neighbors down the block or whether the neighbors a mile down the road. Yeah. And part, and part of it is, is, again, like the way to fix these communities is for the people in the communities to not hide behind. So many times people, oh, this happened, I'm not feeling safe. And I and I, I can't blame anybody, like, or tell them what to do with their life. But 
we got to accept this as the truth. If you grew up seeing what half of these kids saying, like the fact that some of these kids do make it out and end up as doctors and lawyers and business owners and not in prison is a miracle almost. They're the exceptions to the rule. Absolutely. Yeah, because, I mean, you can say what you want to say as a parent. Most people do what they see. I know a lot of people who who live in nice neighborhoods and who their children, they don't sit around and, and, and they don't have to make their children get straight A's. And that's just what's expected of them. You know, and if they got trouble, they got the money to, to get a tutor and all those kind of things to help them out and supplement what, you know, what the school is doing. Most parents don't have that option. You've given us a lot to ref- to reflect on, and I'm really happy that we, we've had you on our show. And if you were to paint a picture for how you would like to see things pan out for your community, even further than what it is, what, what would you want to see and have happen? I would just like to see more good people stay in the community. I, I honestly think that hmm. the narrative that is pushed in our community that that you either have to get out, you know, and that's the definition of making it, or you have to tear the whole neighborhood down and rebuild it and essentially create little enclaves around the city, right? And because that's another thing about justification. When you have a lot of decent black folks in the city and they talk this gentrification talk, but it's like, I saw your model for your neighborhood and it looks just like the neighborhood around the corner. You know, it looks the same. Why do people have to appropriate another's culture to be considered successful? Why can't you just be yourself and have a decent neighborhood? Because in all reality, there was a time when black folk had decent neighborhoods in this country. You know, and they didn't have to model them after other neighborhoods. But now it's almost it's almost a given. But that's what this quote unquote, you know, they renaming neighborhoods and all that stuff. Like we got some neighborhoods and they, you know, they tear down the projects and then they change the name and they think it's supposed to save the neighborhood. But all you did was just replace the neighborhood or displace the people in the neighborhood. You didn't really help the people. You know, how you help people is you you stay and you and say, oh, I make a certain amount of money and I'm not going to drive out to the county to go to Whole Foods, but that's not... That. You're going to go around the corner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, we, and, we, and we don't have to shut down this store. We can help them grow. That's exactly right. But everybody, everybody's answer is we're going to wipe the slate clean and start fresh. You know, that's everybody's answer. And in most cases, that's not the best way. Yeah, I, I don't think so. You know, because I, I know people from, you know, from certain neighborhoods, and they build these, you know, uh, food courts and apartments, and and the people that live there don't feel comfortable going there. So if you don't feel comfortable going there because you don't feel like it's you, like it's, it doesn't represent you, you don't feel welcome there, then how did you really change the, the community? I mean, and yeah. I'm all the answers. I just think that we, you know, simplify answers and really have these tough conversations because that's the other thing. In today's world, the internet stuff and this cancel culture, people can't even have a conversation. To improve any situation, you have to talk about it first. Yeah. 
you know, um, and then it's, if, if you have somebody who doesn't censor themselves, they wrote off as, uh, as rude and disrespectful. It's just difficult to have a real conversation. I agree. I, I have to confess. I mean, 15 years ago, I think I would have been able to say what I wanted to say, but it's a whole new environment. You know, I don't want to step on any toes and what's right, what's not right. Yeah, you, you raise a very good point in terms of self-censuring myself. And I appreciate your honesty. You've illuminated, you know, some aspects and that, you know, I've written several things down. I like that last comment you made about retention. I mean, there's a nice horticultural analogy to that in terms of, you know, keep that healthy tree in the neighborhood, keep that street tree healthy, keep the kids, uh, let them grow into adults and, and buy the house so that New York money doesn't come snap it up. Yeah. And, and, it's, and it's a way to do it. And it might not happen overnight, but it's, it's definitely a way to do it. Yeah. Alex, uh, we have a question that we usually ask all our, our guests. What is your favorite tree or group of trees that you feel are changing how communities look? Well, I, I do have, it's, it's, this, it's this group of London Plain on a street called Lake Avenue here in Baltimore. And they create like this awesome canopy as you drive down, like it's a tunnel. Mm. And I've always wanted to like replicate that. It's becoming more and more difficult as, you know, monocultures are like, it's the bad word of the day, you know, because of all uh, the animal ash ball and people's fears about, you know, um, lack of diversity in El Canada, but I don't know. I, in my mind, I would love to plant something like that. Yeah, Slick Avenue. Well, we really appreciate your time. I hope we can have you on again, maybe during the winter when it's not crazy busy. Anytime. Like, I, I'm, I'm down to have this conversation anytime. Well, just so you know, you we value you and the work mm -hmm. that you're doing in Baltimore and making making your community a better place by supporting the people who uh, have been incarcerated and are working with you, um, with your organizations that you're involved in. And we wish you continued success in everything that you do, Alex. We we really are thrilled that you could be with us no today. No problem. I appreciate it. Um, just make sure you send me a link to this so I can send it to my mother. <laughs> Oh, absolutely. And I did look up the name of the company that Patrick uh, Wilton works for. It's um, Hart, Coppola, and Macht. Yeah. Or Co Coppola. Coppola and Macht. Yeah. yeah. Well, you take care of yourself. Take care. Right. Take care. Bye. Thank you.
Oh, oh, oh.